All right, now to the sermon. Um, Numbers 21, if you go ahead and turn there, uh, let me remind us and catch us up to where we are. We are in this sermon series called Grace in Unexpected Places, and it's specifically looking at passages from the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Torah. And so a lot of times in our culture, people have a, a, a mindset that God was not gracious in the Old Testament, that there's this idea of an Old Testament God who was cranky and liked to kill people and, and was just kind of generally mean and that you wouldn't want to really go near him. That couldn't be further from the actual biblical truth. And that's what I want us to know for sure. And I wanted to, to, for us to see it in some books that sometimes I think we overlook when it comes to the grace of God. And so, uh, especially Leviticus and Numbers, but I think the, other, the others that are part of the Torah as well. And so what we've seen, uh, what we saw in Genesis is in the midst of uh, what was just utterly devastating to all of humanity, God's grace was there. Even in the midst of the curse at Genesis 3.15, he promised, yes, this is going to hurt. The serpent will strike the heel of the sun but the son will crush his head, which we know to be a prophecy of the coming Christ, of redemption that will come in Christ. And if you remember, God so graciously made clothing that would cover all of their nakedness. What they had fashioned for themselves was insufficient. So there was grace all in one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible, Genesis 3. And then we saw, Robbie showed us that, that God's grace is also in hearing his people and in speaking to his people and going with his people. If you remember from Exodus 3, as Moses was being called, he had thought he had disqualified himself and he thought himself the least qualified of people to be able to, to deliver God's message to Pharaoh. And yet God said, I am will be with you. And then we saw from Leviticus that God's means of grace is given to us even in the sacrifices and even the shape of our service is to remind us of whose we are and who we are as forgiven and beloved ones. And so what a beautiful picture from Leviticus 9 of God saying, here are the reminders. Here's a way for you to consistently remember who you are. Don't we forget sometimes who we really are? Don't we sometimes lose our way? Who didn't lose their way during the Falcons game toward the end? Uh, <laughs> You, you're a Detroit fan. I don't want to hear from you. <laughs> and so, so we all find ourselves at times lost along the way and forgetting who we are, either because of some life circumstance, some diagnosis, some lost job, some any relational issue, familial, any of that stuff can cause us to go blind to who we really are. And so, so God says, I want you to remember, I want you to have something that regularly you will come into this, this thing called corporate worship, and you will have all the means of grace necessary to remember who and whose you are. So that brings us to the book of Numbers, which, uh, as we talked about from Leviticus, Leviticus is a book that is really, you, you misread it if you don't recognize that it is about uh, how to dwell with God. Again, remember the whole point of the gospel is that we would be able to dwell with the creator of the universe. And remember that we define grace as not just unmerited favor. It is, in fact, that. But greater than that, it is the unmerited favor given to us by the very presence and promises and gifts of God himself. And when we make grace anything less than that, uh, we do it a disservice. We do ourselves a disservice as well, that the God of the universe would want to be with his people and that he would want to gather with us regularly. 
That we would be able to come in with some expectation of God yet again keeping his promises. And so, as we come to Numbers, this is a book that anyone going into ministry ought to have to memorize, Matthew O'Sullivan. I'm just kidding. You shouldn't have to memorize it. It'll be tough. But you ought to read it because I think it probably gives a clearer and truer picture of ministry than any other book in the Bible. That the people will go, they will swing from this glorious victory and the gifts and the presence of God. And no sooner do they turn from that, that they are complaining and, and they hate everything. And they are speaking in hyperbole and nothing suits them. And they just swing back and forth as they wander through the wilderness. And so it's us, isn't it? It's us at times that we, no sooner does something good happen than you will sometimes say these words. And this will indicate to you kind of some of your heart. I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. How many times have we done that? How many times something good happens and we think because we're very yin-yang minded, right? That there's got to be these alternating forces. If something good happens, then a bad thing must happen, which is great Star Wars theology terrible, terrible biblical theology. And so, so we have to remember that this is a book about us. And if you notice, it too is the valley of the shadow of any biblical reading plan. And you should feel exhausted when you get to the end of it. You are supposed to feel kind of the weight of the journey. What a terrible passage in Numbers 26 where it says, the entire generation that left in the Exodus lay dead in the wilderness except for Joshua and Caleb. That verse has always, always haunted me because they didn't get to see, and even more haunting is Numbers 20. Moses, who is to lead God's people, and they're complaining they don't have water, and God tells him what to do, and he strikes the rock in anger twice, as if he were striking God himself. And he loses his ability to see the promised land that he had so longed to see. And yet, in God's grace, what promised land did Moses see greater than the earthly one? Right? He shows up in the transfiguration, which tells us that Moses was not out. He got to see greater than that. But still, there is that between the now and the not yet reality that is still sweet to us. So, as we approach Numbers 21, it's important to know kind of where they've been. Many commentators think they're toward the end, and I think this is probably accurate. I don't know the exact number. They're toward the end of the wilderness journey, so they've been wandering for a long time. The total years is 40. Some think they're in kind of year 38 or 39. And so this has been a long time, if you think about it, and they feel like they've been going in circles, and they have to some sense. And at this point, they've seen Miriam die. They've seen Moses lose his access to the promised land. They've seen Aaron die. They have been rejected by the Edomite king. They can't go through Edom. Now they have to circle back around the Red Sea way, which is probably a, a reason for them to remind them of who they are. And they've also had a, a recent victory over the Canaanite king Arad. And so even with all that kind of going on, so let's, we, we need to be fair to these folks. There's a lot that's heavy hanging over them. And so their complaining is not without some measure of weight However, what they complain about is what's interesting. Their language is going to sound a lot like Eve's and Satan's from Genesis 3. They're going to speak in hyperbole, which, by the way, we often do, don't we? Always, never, 
and those kinds of terms, and they are not always or never true. Um, and so here they have been struggling, and they're trying to get there. So let me ask you a question, because we are of this lineage. What causes you to grow impatient and to question your circumstances? What is it that makes you pause and go, I, I don't like this. I don't like this at all. In fact, I think if I were God, I could do it better. I think if God gave me control, if he just kind of maybe stopped being so busy all over the world and just take a second, listen to me for a second, I know better than he does, right? Because I can see around the corner. No, you can't. And no, you don't know better, and you don't know what's best for you, and we must confess, as all people should, we are horrible, and I use that term intentionally, horrible arbiters of our own sanctification. You will never cause yourself to grow. You just won't. Now, how many of you are still on your, um, whatever those things are called that we do every year at the first of the year? Your resolutions. How many of you are just killing it, man? You're so proud of yourself. You, this is what we set this up for. This is set up all for your keeping of your resolutions. No, most of us, again, the valley of the shadow has hit. Those resolutions are long gone. We've tweaked them. We're, we're trying to re, kind of reconnoiter, refigure, and get back up and go again. Because we are horrible arbiters of our own sanctification. If you won't do it to yourself, where diet and exercise and your reading plan and whatever else it is it's concerned, you are definitely not going to do it to yourself spiritually. You're just not. I'm not. We need, we need God's sovereign hand at work in our lives. We need his grace. We need his presence. We need his calling us to do what only he can call us to do. We would never call ourselves to do. And so this is where we come. The people of Israel are upset and they're angry and they're impatient and they're entitled and, uh, and they're letting God hear about it. So let's look at the text, Numbers 21, 4 through 6, God's impatient and entitled people. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Now, we need to unpack this a little bit. There's actually a lot here. This, in fact, is the last recorded grumbling of the people of Egypt. Right? I mean, I'm sorry. Well, that's actually probably more accurate. They are acting more like the people of Egypt than the Israelites. This is the last recorded grumbling of the, of the Israelites in the book of Numbers. <clears throat> There's a reason it's the last, because finally God's had enough, and he sends fiery serpents upon them, and many die, and many are dying. And so here they have grown discouraged, they are tired of wandering, and they begin to question God. Have you ever been there? Have you ever had the audacity to question God? Yeah, we all have. If we're honest, and if you haven't, uh, you're holier than the rest of us, and you should probably be doing this part. But we've all kind of questioned God's plan and said, 
We're tired of your wa- this wandering. We, we have nothing. Look, look what they said. We have no water. Now, if you know anything about the book of Numbers, the incident at Mirabah just happened in Numbers 20. They had water that came from rocks. They had manna that came down from heaven. They were speaking in hyperbole because they were wanting something other than what they were actually asking for. They weren't asking for food and water. They had that. They didn't like it. But what they're asking for, actually, is control. See, they were questioning not just God's provision, but the very plan of God. The very redemptive working of God. Now, let me ask you, for those of you who know anything about the Bible, weren't they told how long they were going to wander in the wilderness? Now, didn't they know that, that this was going to take a certain amount of time? Wasn't God gracious to them to kind of inform them this wasn't a, uh, just, just something arbitrary? God was teaching them something, and it was ultimately even for their good, even when they lay dead in the wilderness. So here they're hurling their complaints against God, and they're questioning Moses, and they are entitled and foolish children. They thought they knew better than he did. And notice what God does. God uses serpents. Now, he could have used a lot of things, right? But he used serpents. And why do you think he specifically used serpents to come in and kill them? Well, it would have given them two ideas. The first would have been to remind them of Egypt. Serpents were uh, critical aspects of Egyptian mythos. And if you remember, if you've ever seen Pharaoh's mask, it has a cobra on the head. And so snakes were very much a a part of what they believed. And so they were being reminded of their former taskmaster. Now, let me ask you, based on your reading of the the enslavement in Egypt, which is in the the beginnings of Exodus, did he show them grace? Do you remember how he treated them? Uh, how the, the, the first guy was all right to him, but the next guy, not so much. He didn't know them this way. And remember what he did. He said, I'm going to give you less, and I'm going to require more of you. This is starting to sound like the Industrial Revolution. And so he is, he is treating them, and he begins to slaughter the children that have been given to them as gift from God. So to go back to Egypt is to go back to What? harsher task masterness than where they currently were. Also, God wanted to remind them of the even more harsh taskmaster who offered the people of God an option. Satan himself comes as a serpent and he says, I know a shortcut. If you want to be like God, you don't have to do all this sanctification stuff. All you got to do is eat the tree of, uh, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and instantaneously you will be God. You don't have to go through the training. You don't have to go through the serving. You don't have to do any of that nonsense. You can become glorified. Your eyes will be opened. And they were, weren't they? To how not like God they really were instead of becoming God. So these serpents should have been a a stern reminder. Now, Where they were located, uh, according to archaeological records, uh, Lawrence of Arabia spoke of this area as being one of the most God-forsaken places on earth because it was filled with snakes all the time, deadly snakes. 
So God was using what was naturally there, but also more importantly, he was using it to teach them, to send them a message about what was really happening to them. That they were in fact calling for submission to a taskmaster that would never show them grace. That would always require more from them than they could give and in fact would do nothing but destroy them and the glory that is contained in them because of the image that they bear. Now, that's important for us to remember because I think that we sometimes think that there are better taskmasters than God, that there are those who will love us better than God does, that, those, that there are those who will provide for us better than God can. And so often what's interesting is the flip is, is that we think it's us, right? That I, as my own sovereign taskmaster, will do well by me. How many of you do really well by yourself? How many of you are, treat your body as a temple? You love you, really. And even if you were doing that, how long can you make it last? How much control do you really have in this world? And so be careful of the most brutal taskmaster of all, which is your pride the antithesis to faith. So here we have God bringing judgment upon the people because of their impatience and their entitlement. Now you may say, well, that's that Old Testament stuff, right? Just another example, Old Testament God. Well, we are doing communion today. Might I remind you of a passage from 1 Corinthians 11? If you remember, the people of God had not been a church for all that long in Corinth, It didn't take them long to get sideways on a host of issues, one of which was the Lord's Supper. And if you remember how they did it, they did it as more of a a bigger meal. And they would, if you were rich, you got to eat all the good stuff before the poor people got there. Right? So the poor people were left with whatever they brought, which was oftentimes what poor people can bring, which is beans and rice or whatever whatever the kind of the, the cheap stuff of the day was. Right? And so, so they were forsaking really what the Lord's table was about, which is the, the unification of the people of God around the presence of the Lord. And remember those words, and I, it's one of those passages that I, I, I wish Paul hadn't said, but I, I, I'm thankful he said it at the same time, because I, I think we don't know, quite know what to do with it, but he's like, some of you are sick and dying because of the way in which you are treating the Lord's table. And I haven't ever seen anybody, and I know there's been people who've taken it wrongly. I probably have myself. I haven't ever seen anybody die or their head blow up or anything weird like that. It'd probably change things for us if there was something that, that forward. But might he be talking about not just the physical, but the spiritual? Many of us, if we're not careful, we are dying as you sit here right now spiritually. You are sick. You think that grumbling is a spiritual gift. You think that critique is a fine art. Right? You you think that you will grow based on your grumbling. I, in the history of my 44 years in pastoral ministry, and I have heard this from others, I have never heard of anyone getting better by grumbling. I just haven't. And I don't think you are a strong enough taskmaster to get there from here. 
So I say that to say, so let me just also confess, when I was not a preacher, and even as a preacher, do you think I have ever grumbled knowing me? I have. And you know what I know? It never made anything any better. I'll never forget, there was a church that we were moving from Jonesboro to Macon. And I had a meeting set up with the the pastor as we were leaving, and I had loaded both cannons, right? And I I was going to let, we were eating at Folks, by the way, which is one of my favorite places. I just ate there the other day. It's still not very good, but I I love it. Uh, I don't know why. But anyway, I had both cannons loaded, and I was going to let him have it because there was a lot that was wrong with this church. And I, because I'd been a Christian for, what, two, three years, I mean, I knew some stuff. I knew some stuff I thought that could help him, right? What was interesting is Tracy was late to that meal providentially. As I sat there and, folks, the Holy Spirit does what he sometimes does for me in public places where I like to eat. He broke me. And I began to weep. And the waitress was like, do you need some help? I just need some more sweet tea (laughs) and a peach muffin. Uh, and so I began to weep and I realized that, no, I was going to push those cannons away. And what I was in fact going to do was confess to Tracy all my grumbling and how I had harmed his ministry and the very glory of God with my heart and my mind and my attitude. And I was like, this ain't, this, this ain't what I set out to do. So Tracy gets there and he takes one look at me and he's like, you all right? <laughs> and so I said, Tracy, I, I have failed you as pastor. I have failed this church. I have failed the very glory of God. And I just spilled everything that, and, and it wasn't a passive aggressive unloading of the cannons, right? So don't get that impression. It was, I still didn't like unload those things on him. And it was a beautiful thing that happened. Tracy said, because um, I'd been, what you don't know is I'd been removed as a Sunday school teacher prior to this, and rightfully so, because I didn't love people very much. I loved God's word more than I love his people, and that's, that's wrong. That's out of balance. And so he said, I tell you what, I want you to teach one last time. I want you to teach the Sunday school class, and then we're going to bring you and Susan up, and we're going to say goodbye to you. We're going to pray for you. One of the most gracious things that I have seen from a man who had been essentially for all intents and purposes, just putting it out there, betrayed. And a Sunday school class was interesting. It was on Ananias. Uh, no, wait, let me get this right. Because <laughs> Ananias and Sapphira died. That's not who it was about. It was about Aquila and Priscilla. And that, <laughs> and that had a profound impact on how Susan and I viewed our ministry in Macon. And it, it so just studying that did something so deep in my heart that was powerful. And it was a beautiful moment that taught me something very deep. And so I don't want you to think I'm up here hurling stones at those of you who may struggle with grumbling about things. I am numbered among you. And do you think I sometimes maybe grumble as pastor? Do you think sometimes I don't love you as much as I ought to? Don't answer that. Uh, And I want to. And I'm in this too, so what I'm saying to you I also is being said to me and have been very convicted by, as, as I've said, because I, I have uh, and can be incredibly critical about everything. I have opinions about all kind of stuff. Uh, and they're, they're not really worth very much, really, in, in light of the glory of God, in light of what could be. 
And so uh, know that I am in the process of repenting and working through this as well because it is costly. Our grumbling, it is costly to the bride of Christ. Now, is that, am, I, am I hedging my bets so that you guys can't ever complain about anything ever again? It's like you send me an email, I'm just going to send you back a meme of a fiery serpent. <laughs> that sounds awesome, but no, that's not what I'm going to do. Uh, and so I'm not trying to hedge my bets here. We, we can speak to one another. There's a way in which we can di- uh, dialogue about the things that maybe are bothering you or that, that you, you feel like are off. But again, remember, be a Berean. Let it be biblical, not just stylistic or historical or cultural or any of these other kind of things. Not that those things are not important, but remember they're secondary in comparison to the biblical. And so let us honor one another for the sake of the glory of God. Because when we don't, it is not just costly to us, it's costly to our children. It's costly to those outside the church. Listen to what Ian Duguid says about this passage. He says, it was not the Lord that brought them in the, into the wilderness to die. Let me pause. He's not questioning God's sovereignty. He's talking cause and effect here. It was not the Lord that brought them into the wilderness to die, as they alleged in verse 5. Their death was not due to his power failing to give them that which he had promised. On the contrary, death in the wilderness was a result of their own sin and that of their forefather, Adam. Their death was their own fault. Our spiritual dying, oftentimes, it is our own fault. We are perishing within our own hearts and souls. Now, for those of you who may be hearing that as, so, so therefore, you've got to go do a bunch of stuff, right? So I'm going to, you need to, your devotions need to catch fire and all this kind of stuff. No, this is, this is a more of a heart issue. This is about the gospel. Use the means of grace as they're intended to be used to encourage you. Don't turn it into something legalistic because even there, you cannot make it work. You're not going to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and love numbers or Leviticus or any of these other things. What you, what you need to do is remember who and whose you are via the means of grace and enjoy the things that are given to you by God, knowing who he is and that he is a good, good father. So do you ever get impatient with God's leading and provision? How many of you are thinking, this is not where I intended to be? This was not my plan. For those of you who are third grade and up, pay attention for just a second. Quick question, for those of you third through fifth grade who thought your life was going to be something, you had a vision for your life, how many of you that vision is what came true? Third through fifth grade, lots of astronauts, firemen, presidents, and so forth. We have none of them here, right? So in third through fifth grade, Uh, What I wanted to be was a lawyer. Now, you may be thinking, you prosecute us every week. Uh, So some part it came true, but not in the way that my grandmother thought. Um, And so I am not at all what I thought it would be. In fact, how many of you, even first year of college, you are what you thought you would be? Yeah, a couple of you. I mean, I I thought I was going to be a forensic scientist. (laughs) I took calculus and that ended that dream. Uh, I didn't know there was calculus involved in forensic science and all this stuff. I was like, I just 
I thought it was like TV and lo bad lighting, uh, that kind of stuff. That was forensic science. And then I wanted to be an industrial organizational psychologist, which is just a fancy term for hatchet man, which I might have been pretty good at, but I didn't want to be that guy that comes into an organization and says, these 20 people that I don't know lose their job. Heads roll today. I couldn't live with that. And then I was going to be a criminal psychologist because I'd read The Stranger Beside Me, which is the book about Ted Bundy, right? And thought I was going to be a criminal psychologist, and that didn't quite pan out either because I decided I probably wouldn't be a whole lot of fun to be around at night at the dinner table uh, for whomever I may marry. And uh, so I am not at all where I thought I would be most of those years, which is interesting. And none of those years was I a Christian, by the way, so this wasn't even remotely on the radar. So I say that to say that for most of us, the reality is we are not anywhere where we had intended or planned in so many respects, whether it's our fault, someone else's fault, circumstances, economics, whatever it may be. However, what you need to know and remember always is the Lord your God has been with you the whole way. Even in the darkest of places where you couldn't catch a flicker of his presence, he was there. He is there. He is there now. And so often we, we become just like the Israelites. We feel like we are entitled to something better than this. Certainly, Lord, I'm, I deserve better than this. Do you? And if you think you do, what is it about you uh, that makes you think you deserve better? And might you recognize what it is, the gift that you already have and cultivate so much of what you have, invest in where you are, instead of always keeping your eyes to a distant horizon that never comes. Because otherwise, it is deadly to us spiritually. And I don't want to see you, it's not that I'm worried about you getting bit by fiery serpents, I don't want to see you go the slow hard way of your soul shriveling up and you eventually having nothing, nothing that will bring you joy in this life. Now that sounds caustic, but I've, I haven't been in ministry, but maybe 15 or so years and I've seen it too many times. And it always follows a similar pattern. It begins with grumbling. It begins with drifting. And it begins with cutting oneself off from the means of grace, cutting oneself off from fellowship, uh, pushing against things uh, in a way that is utterly unhealthy. I've never seen it end well. And I think that many of you who've been uh, elders for a long time, you, you've never seen it end well either. Back to the text. Let's look at the solution. God's repentant people in his means of grace. Verse 7. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that, we, that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Interestingly, God's judgment always is for the purpose of driving his people back to him. It, in and of itself, has an element of a means of grace, right? Notice when it speaks of discipline, which is of God's people, uh, certainly in the book of Hebrews, it says that a good father disciplines his children. And the discipline is so that you know that you're loved and you're brought back to him. Now, you may say, this is a little stronger. Like, there's dead people. People died. There is a gravity to this. There was a judgment that was, that was ultimate for many 
but not for all. And so this act of judgment, these fiery serpents, was to drive them to access the means of grace. And notice what they do. They confess their sin. So for those of you who are maybe struggling this morning and you feel like your, your soul just is not, it's just not doing well. Might, might I challenge you to take some time this Lord's Day Sabbath and get before the Lord and pray this prayer. Lord, show me my anxiety. Show me my darkness. Show me my sin that keeps me from you that is causing my soul not to flourish and thrive. And they come to a man that they know, that they had just grumbled against, and asked him to serve, in essence, as a mediator of sorts. Now, you may say, well, that's Old Testament stuff, but remember what it says in the book of James, chapter 5. If there are any sick among you, what are you supposed to do? Go to the elders and have them pray for you and anoint you with oil. Essential oils, no less. Frankincense, probably the most expensive. Go to the elders, have them pray for you. And remember what it says about the prayers of a righteous man. What do they do? They avail much. Now, here's what's important. If we had no righteous men in this congregation, no one that you could turn to and ask for prayer, or women either, by the way, there was no one to ask to pray for us. Does that help the church? So is your sanctification, your current condition of your soul, does it have an impact on body life? It does. And if we don't know each other well enough to trust each other, to come to each other and pray for one another, that also hinders us. And you may say, well, Cameron, if you would hold more events. Remember, what am I not? The activities director on the cruise line of your Christian life. I'm just not. I'd be terrible at it, by the way. I don't even know what the word fun means half the time. I think it means read Dostoevsky. That gives you any indication. So, so this is an important thing for you to, to, to remember, is that how your spiritual walk goes, so goes the life of the church. For those of you, even those of you who are far at the periphery, those of you who not come all the way in, you, you, you kind of exist on the fringe you are having an impact on the church. You are. And so here we have Moses, even though, and think of the grace here, that Moses, like Aaron, he had just, just disqualified himself from the promised land in chapter 20, just as Aaron had disqualified himself in Exodus. And yet... Like Leviticus 9, Aaron, who gets to pronounce the blessing over the people for whom he has conducted the sacrifice, Moses gets to pray for the people, for God to relent. So this means of grace has a, a, an impact on the people of God. So for those of you who don't know, the means of grace are prayer, corporate worship, God's word, um, the sacraments, Anything that really kind of points us, those are the key ones, but those things that point us to Christ, that's the means of grace to remind us of who we are and who he is. Those are the main ones. And are you accessing them? Are you using them? George Bush, again, not W or H, says this in his commentary in the book of Numbers, in the extremity that is now upon them, what could the people do? The course pursued was the only right and reasonable one. 
They apply themselves to God who alone was able to deliver. They humble themselves before God and entreat Moses to intercede for them. If the Lord had not mercy on them, they must all perish. The very first step in conciliating the forfeited favor of heaven is the penitent confession of our offenses. For he that confesseth and forsaketh sin shall find mercy. Have you ever experienced God's disciplining hand? Have you ever had God put something on you so strong that it felt like he was pressing you into the earth? Or did he ever take anything away from you? How did you respond? Which way did you run? What did the means of grace mean to you in that season? Again, lest you think that I am not numbered among you. Uh, I remind you that there was a season in which my family had gotten into such a disarray that I had to step down as an elder at New City Church. And I remember the very first service where, where I had to sit deposed. And yet the means of grace were so rich and so overwhelming and so sweet to me that being deposed didn't matter near as much as the nearness of God and the forgiveness of Christ. And as God, who is so gracious, would allow, my return to the eldership was on Father's Day the following year, where I was asked to preach. Again, I don't think that was by accident. And I did serve and love my family during that time away from the church. But God's means of grace were so rich and so deep that it has so shaped me in pastoral ministry that that is what is more, far more important than anything else in this world. This name tag, Mormonish as it is, means nothing to me. It means nothing to me to be the lead pastor of this church without Christ. It means nothing to me to have this job or to do any of these things if God be not near and in it. If his forgiveness is not washing over me, I have no desire to be an atheist in the pulpit or a functional atheist leading you astray. And would that that would be all of our greatest concern instead of are we being recognized? Are we being acknowledged? Are we being rightly, uh, put, are gifts being rightly used? All of these things that are just chatter, red herrings of various kinds, and we would just take so much joy in God's making us his beloved. And that would cause, everything would rise out of that. Would a hallmark of our church be the joy that we have because of the, the restorative means of grace that God grants to us again and again? Turn back to the text. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. And this is God's enduring grace. This is God's enduring grace. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses, uh, so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, this is kind of a strange story if you think about it. But Jesus picked it up for us as we saw in the assurance of pardon. He too must be lifted up as the serpent was lifted in the wilderness. Now, why would God say, 
make a bronze serpent. Now, is there anything magical about the bronze serpent? Well, we know from 2 Kings 18 that there's not because the people end up worshiping the bronze serpent later on and King Hezekiah destroys it. So there's nothing magical about the serpent itself. What was being shown to the people is God's declaration that I am which means he is sovereign over all things. He sent the serpent and he will, to kill and he will use the serpent to heal. Think of the book of Job. When Satan thinks he can do whatever he wants to Job, and God says to him, no. In fact, Satan, all that you do will lead ultimately to his redemption and restoration. He will become a man of prayer like this world has never seen. After all you've thrown at him. So this is a pattern that we see all throughout Scripture, that that which is cursed, that which is a means of judgment, becomes a means of grace. Think of Christ. What did he become? He became sin so that we would not have to pay the penalty of sin. He became the cursed one. All who are lifted up on a tree are cursed. So that we would not ever have to be raised up in that fashion, cursed and damned to hell. This is a foreshadow of the coming of Christ and it shows that there's nothing man can do to save himself. How ridiculous, a fashioning of a bronze or copper serpent. That that would be the means of salvation, looking to that. And notice, who, were, who was it that was saved? Only those who had been bitten. Only those in need of a physician. And do you have any idea the size of the pole necessary to make sure that people could see it? Do you have any idea of how people would have had to minister to one another if you'd been bitten by this fiery serpent? One of the reasons it's referred to as fiery is because the inflammation that would just course through your body, the agony that you would be in, how hard it would be to look up from your circumstance. Think if you've been bitten once, you were worried you would probably be bitten again. And so the temptation would be to look at the things of the earth instead of look up. Look up and behold the salvation of the Lord. So this would have been put on what's called a signal pole, which they would have used a very tall pole to signal when they were going to war, oftentimes, or when they were moving in a certain fashion. And it would have required people to help one another because of the situation that they were in. The people of God would have been focused on salvation. Because their circumstance was recognized for what it really was, dire. How often are we entangled looking at the things of the earth, right? So much of what leads to our grumbling is we are so tangled up in the things of the earth. And so often we do a poor job of looking to the right hand of the Father where Christ is seated on high, where your life is hidden and will be revealed in glory when he comes again meaning all is already taken care of. There is nothing for you to worry about here. No one can do to you what God can do for you. No one can rob you of body and soul. They just can't, no matter how totalitarian the regime that rises. I've been reading a bunch of dystopian novels, so I had to get that in there, 1984 and such. And so... 
we have to do as they do. We have to continue to, as Colossians 3 calls us to do, to look. If you have been resurrected in Christ, you are called to look to the right hand of the Father. That is where you are to find what you need. And the chapter goes on, chapter 3 in Colossians, to say this is what allows you to put to death all the things in you that are killing you and to put on all the things that bring you life. It is only when you look to Christ, the crucified one, the one who was raised up just as the serpent was raised in the wilderness. This solution is fully supernatural just as the cross is. Nothing man can do. So what is it that occupies your thoughts? What do you think about most and how is it affecting you? Is it helping make you a better person? Is it helping you to grow as a believer? What is it doing to you, all the things you meditate on? Many of us are caught up in a spirit of fear for a variety of reasons as we look around at our world. We're caught up in all of these kind of strange things as if we could change people's minds. You understand it takes supernatural healing to change someone's heart and mind. Not stridency, not reasoned argument, not volume of information. Might I remind you of the great theologian Kimberly Barham who said these words, I know the truth, but I don't care. Trump that. I didn't use that Trump part on purpose either. He's ruined that word for us in some respects. So what is it that gives you anxiety? What is it that gives you hope? You need to think about these things and how the various things of your life, are they, what are they contributing to, anxiety or hope? And why? Why are you engaging in them? Even after all this, the people of God, as they leave from this moment, they will find themselves again uh, in a position of victory as they will... They will overcome two different kings. They will have all kinds of things going on. You also hit the story of Balaam, and then you find yourself at the place where they get involved in Baal worship at Peor. Even they lose their way after all they have seen. And yet, does the Bible end in Numbers 26? No, it doesn't. It continues because of God's enduring grace. The promise, Genesis 3.15, continues. So we should take heart. So what do we learn from this strange passage in Numbers 21? Strange but beautiful. One, that God's ways are not our ways and are often frustrating to us. And they ought to be because he's so other than us. Two, God's discipline is intended to drive us back to him through his means of grace. Always. Three, God's grace endures with his people in the midst of our ongoing struggles with sin. He endures with us. What's so beautiful is we have an opportunity this morning to yet again behold and taste of that which is good. And Christ set this up as a remembrance to us. Remember, he said, each time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Be reminded of what I have done. Be reminded of my lifted upness. Look to the elements and see. See my broken body. See my spilled blood for you. See the redemption that has come. And it is in these meager elements that something supernatural is signed and signified. 
And we believe that our faith is nourished by these things. And so many of us, because our souls are, we are struggling for a variety of reasons. We grumble for a variety of reasons. And we need our faith to be nourished. And how gracious is God to give us this tangible means of grace to remind us of all the goodness of the person and the work of Christ.